is a scripture that we read with Tyler just a few moments ago from 1 Peter. This is the third Sunday we have read this passage, this exact passage, and we're going through it two verses at a time, three verses at a time, looking at three different sections uh, and three different messages about sanctification in this first chapter of First Peter. What have we learned from Peter's first letter? We learned his subject is sanctification. The sanctification of the Christian, the word for sanctify and the word for holy is the same word in Greek. We could say to sanctify is to make holy. Sanctification, we could invent a word and say holification. Making the individual, making the church holy. That's the subject. We first saw that this sanctification causes the Christian to live a different life from the world. Three times in the first two chapters of First Peter, he calls Christians exiles. He actually calls me, he calls you exiles in this world. Following, following Christ is the life of an outlier in a fallen world. We're exiles, strangers, outliers in a culture that is hostile to God, in a culture that's hostile to his word. And we're not a people trying to be odd. There are folks like that. We don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going out and be odd today. Rather, we go out into the day saying, I will follow Jesus. If you follow him, you will live differently than the world around you. That's just the way it is. You must know this. Every day, you're an exile, an alien, a stranger, a peculiar person in this world, a different person. It will be uncomfortable to be a Christian, to seek holiness, to seek to follow Jesus daily in this world. It doesn't matter if you're in junior high school, high school, college, if you're a businessman, businesswoman in Fayette County, if you're a contractor, electrician, a plumber, if you're in agriculture or teaching, it's not our vocation that makes us different. As a Christian, we are living in a secular world. We're living in a secular world as individuals following Christ. That means we'll, we'll just be quite different. Then we asked the question last week, what drives us to this holiness? Why are we driven? What compels us to this holiness? What's our incentive? Peter tells us that one no less than the Son of God came from eternity, came from glory, took on flesh, was crucified on the, of all things, on the town garbage heap, a sacrifice for our sins. Remember, he says, conduct yourselves with reverence 
throughout the time of your exile. Why? Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile way of living by the precious blood of Christ. How could we be devoted to the very sins that drove the nails in Christ? Why do we live this different life from the fallen world? Just go to the cross and see who is there and what he did. But the question is still there. That's what we come to this morning. How can we live this different life? It doesn't seem natural to the sinful inclinations of our heart. It seems to go against this this different way of living. It seems to go against the inner core of our being. Think about it. To love God first above all else, more than self, to love him more than father and mother, to love him more than son or daughter. This has happened more than once, but I was sitting in my office one day speaking with with a family that, parents, a mother, a father, and three children, they were joining the church. They were transferring. The children were joining the church. The parents were transferring from another congregation. And as I, as, as I spoke what faith in Christ meant, I read from the passage in the New Testament where Jesus says, you must love me more than you do father or mother. You must love me more than you do a son or daughter. And this this man literally set up like something had hit him. And he said, you've got to be kidding. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm supposed to love Christ more than I do my my daughters? The answer to that question is yes. That's hard. Then he goes on to say, to love our neighbors as we do ourselves. To love God more than money. More than our jobs. More than success. Then there's that command to love our enemies. To bless those who hurt us. To forgive wrongs done to us instead of harboring hate. I never will forget my erudite mentor, Dr. Robert Todd Liston. He was one of the few professors I had. He was a visiting professor. He was one of the few professors that I had in seminary that was indeed a Christian. That that really believed scripture. And as he stood in class one day, 80 years old, in his early 80s, he was reading from the Gospels about, the, it was in the portion of the Gospel where Jesus says that if a man looks after a woman and lusts after her, he's committing adultery. And he stopped and very sincerely 
looked at this group of, of men. He, he called us boys. And he said, boys, I don't know how you do with that kind of teaching, but I don't do too well. It's true. It's a struggle. How do you live this holy life? What is the what is the source for this holy life? What enables us to live such a life? If you say, well, there's the law. The law that we have in Scripture, God's Word. We just follow the law. That's what the Pharisees did. And they were lost. Not only is this holy life radical to us. Look at who we were on the inside in our hearts before the work of God in our lives. I want us to look. It's on your scripture sheet. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We've seen this over and over again. Paul is speaking. It's one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament. Paul is speaking to a group of Christians. They've been converted and he's reminding them from whence they came, the life before their conversion. Look at it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You lived these sins following the course of this world. Not only that, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Among whom... We all once lived, Paul includes himself in this, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In our former lives, Satan and the world were saying quite opposite of what God was saying through Peter in 1 Peter. In that letter. In our former lives, Satan and the world were saying to us, be unholy as I'm unholy. There's, there's an attraction, a dark beauty to sin. And it draws us. How are people like this, described like this, how are people then supposed to live in holiness? Holiness as God defines it, it just seems impossible. Well, Peter gives us an answer this morning in verses 14 through 17. Let's look at it. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with reverence through the time of your exile. Now we often miss the real crux, the real significance in those verses. First, Peter calls us Children. Now he's not being patronizing there and saying, dear children. Sometimes John was doing that. 
No, he was calling them the children of God. Remember how in, in Ephesians talked about the past life? He said, we followed after Satan. Well, he actually calls them now, not the children of the world, not the children of darkness, not the children of Satan. He calls them the children of God. You go on down there to verse 16, verse 17. And if you call on him as father, what, how did Jesus tell us to speak to God? Father, over and over again. How did we become the children of God? How did, how did that happen? We've gone from the children of Satan to the children of God. So someone raises their hand and says, I know. The Bible teach us, teaches us that we're adopted into God's family. The Bible does teach that. In Ephesians 1.5, there on your scripture sheet, in love, he predestined us, predestined us, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Several times in Romans, Paul speaks of our adoption, that God adopted us. What is adoption? Hang with me. What is adoption? Adoption is the legal act of taking someone into your family and granting him or her the legal rights of a son or daughter. That's what it is. Some years ago, uh, there was a couple that were friends of mine, friends of ours. Terry knew them. Took in a, a young lady. This couple took in another, a young lady from another country. It began, she, she lived with them for several years. And they thought of, came to think of her as their own child. She came to think of them as her parents. After several years, now this girl was, this, this, this young lady was an adult. She was in college when they first met her. But she lived with them for years. After several years, they adopted her. They had other children. That adoption gave her the legal status that their other children had. As you can imagine, it caused some consternation in the family. This young lady, though she had no DNA of either parent, had the legal rights of a son or daughter. That's adoption. Even though there was no biological sameness in the family, she held a legal status. She had not been born into that family. That girl's being, that young lady's being, had not been changed. Only her status. God has richly blessed us. We are not only legally adopted by the Father, we are born. Hear me. We're born into his household. Our being has been changed. Look at the beginning of John's gospel in John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And at that point, you may think, well, he's talking about adoption. No, he's not. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We were born, not by blood, not by normal physical birth, 
Not even by our own will. We were born of God. In the Gospels, to whom was Jesus speaking when he first brought up the subject of being born again? You know the story of Nicodemus. In John 3, a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes seeking a conversation with Jesus. Now, this man was not a derelict. Quite the opposite. The Pharisees were extreme, extreme in their efforts for holiness, in their efforts for sanctification. They misunderstood Scripture and thought that they would be saved by their good works, by their ultra-religious practices. Folks, these people made up laws to obey. They were punctilious in their detailed obedience. Here's how you should picture Nicodemus. He had the heart of the world that described in Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 that we read a few minutes ago. Children of Satan, a heart following after the world. He outwardly looked so moral and religious. Every part of his dress had some religious symbol. After Nicodemus' opening compliment of Jesus, remember he said, we know you're a man from God. No one could do the things that you do if he weren't from God. He paid him a compliment. How did Jesus respond? What was the very first thing he said to Nicodemus? Jesus replied, very truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now notice those those two words, very truly. It's the Hebrew word repeated, amen, amen. That word uh, is a, a rare word that it was not translated into Greek. It was transliterated into Greek, the same vowels, the same syllables. And then it was transliterated into Latin, and then it was translated into English. And it's the original Hebrew word, amen. Sounded more like amen, amen, amen. It's, it's an emphasis marker. It says, this is true truth. This is surely the truth. I'm about to say something to you that is terribly, terribly significant. We say amen at the end of the prayer saying, this is surely true. Jesus used the word twice, amen, amen. I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless he's born again. Nicodemus didn't know anything about that. How how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He must be born of the spirit, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're trying to be holy through an outward reformation. You need to be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit. Just as you were born with a sinful nature, now you must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your nature must be changed. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
brand new. He's newly created. He has a different heart. There's a passage that's terribly important in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. The subject is, again, is sanctification. Look at it. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Do you see that? That's the subject of this morning. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these things, or through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Now look, this is the crux. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. Do you understand that? We participate in the very nature of God himself. What was he speaking about? He was speaking about being born again. Regeneration gives us a new nature, the nature of his children. We're partakers of the divine nature. This new heart empowers us, enables us in holiness. Yet there's more that enables us towards sanctification. How does the Holy Spirit change our lives? We're born again. Then what? Does, does he leave us on wrong? Does he, you have a new nature now. You're done. You know better. Over and over again in the gospel, Jesus told his disciples that he would dwell in them, that he would dwell with them by the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit. And that's what he tells us. You'll not only be born again, but the Holy Spirit will stay with you. Look at Romans 8, 12 through 16. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, capital S, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What's Paul saying? He's talking about our battle with sin right there. It's about sanctification. He says, in your battle with sin... Don't forget who you are. You're the sons of God. You've been born again. You're not the same person you were. The same spirit that, that, that changed you, that changed your heart, now indwells you. Don't forget who you are. Well, let's press this. A changed heart this changed heart, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, does not make sanctification automatic. The Holy Spirit dwelling in our lives does not make this. We, we don't sit back in our chair and say, okay, I have a new heart. The Holy Spirit is with me. Ha, my, life, my life is done. I'll li I will live a holy life. 
The changed heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit equip us to strive towards sanctification. There have always been folks in the church, well-meaning folks, who think that the Scripture teaches that when we're really, and you stress really, when you're really born again, and when the Holy Spirit really indwells with you, we don't struggle with sin anymore. More than once, Christians have told me personally, well-meaning Christians, have said, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit changes your heart, and when he really deals with you, sometimes they call it the second blessing, you will not struggle with sin anymore. Folks, that's a lie. That's just a lie. It's just the opposite. Before we're born again, before we're born again, we don't struggle with sin. The world does not struggle with sin. We gladly glow along. Sometimes we hesitate because we don't want to get caught. Look at the world and culture around us today. Does our culture struggle with sin? Immorality is rampant. I'm not talking about in Chicago or in Memphis proper. It's out here in Fayette County. It's embraced greed, materialism, narcissism. It's rampant. The Bible and godliness is mocked. It's only when we're born again. It's only when the Spirit indwells us that we're prepared and equipped to do battle for the first time in our lives. But it is a battle. There's four, four truths about you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, first, your heart's been changed. Secondly, your heart, your, your, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Your heart's been changed. So secondly, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Thirdly, the remnant of sin and your sin nature remains. There's something of sin remaining in us. Fourthly, we live in a world that's dominated by sin. That means that there will always be, always be an internal and external battle about this life that we live. It will never end. It will be that way. Till the day the Lord calls us home. One of the great saints of the 20th century in the Presbyterian church was a man named Cornelius Van Til. He was born in 1895. He died in 1987. He was a world-renowned Dutch-American Christian philosopher, Reformed theologian, uh, minister, apologist, one of the great apologists for Christianity in the world. He taught at Westminster Seminary, uh, in uh, Presbyterian Seminary in Philadelphia, for 43 years. He taught in that seminary until he was 80 years old. Even in his later years, he would often, in speaking to his students, refer to his battle with sin in his life. His students once asked ask him, Here's this older man. They, they couldn't understand it. He was so holy. And they asked him what sins he could still be battling. Cornelius Van Til answered, Gentlemen, the same sins I battled when I was 16 
the changed heart and the Holy Spirit enable you to battle. It's not automatic. The Holy Spirit does not say to you, you sit on the sidelines, I'll do your fighting. Look at Romans 8.13 again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. He does not say the Spirit will put to death the deeds of the body. He says by the Spirit you will do this. We're engaged in this. It's a battle, but we have been supernaturally equipped to fight it. And it is a fight. It is a battle. Oh, there's so much more to understand about this matter of sanctification. What is the overall goal? Yesterday we had our pathways class, our foundations class for people looking at at Christ Presbyterian. And we talked about this. In this matter of sanctification, what's the overall goal of the Holy Spirit in our lives? It's not just to put sin to death. What's the ultimate end? He's working in our lives, shaping us to look like our Father. There it is in 1 Peter. The Father says, be holy as I'm holy. Be like your Father. The Holy Spirit, we read in another part of the New Testament, is carving our lives through this sanctification to look like Jesus, our brother. We are family. There should be a family resemblance. Last winter, Terry and I were in Memphis. We were in a store, a business. There were several customers sitting or standing all around. While we waited, we we saw three young men, and they were talking with each other, looked like college students. I said, Terry, look at that young man. He's a spitting image. He's a clone of Dan McEwitt. That has to be Dan's son. A minute later, he saw us. And he walked over to speak to me. I can't remember. uh, It had been 16 years since I really talked to him when he was a child. He came over and spoke. I really did not know him as an individual. I knew who he was because he looked like his dad, exactly like his dad. Jesus told his disciples the world would recognize them. Not because they wore crosses around their necks. I think that's a good thing to do. But that won't be the reason. Not because they carry their Bibles. Not because they stand on street corners and pray. He said, they'll know who you are. Because of just the way you live day after day. And the way you live 
even in this sinful world, will bear a resemblance to your father and to your brother, Jesus Christ. Amen.